Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So says our Lord to St. Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. Unable to stay awake with Jesus, Peter receives his master's rebuke as Judas, the betrayer, approaches with a crowd from the chief priests and elders to arrest Jesus, starting the clock on his passion and death. Peter would later prove weak in spirit as well, denying Jesus three times before later finding redemption in his threefold proclamation of love for the risen Lord who commands him, feed my sheep. Like St. Peter himself, the church's ministers down through the centuries are only too human, yet their work is loaded with eternal significance. Every deacon, priest, and bishop, like every ordinary Christian, struggles to live in the strength of Christ, despite natural limitations of body and of will. At times, in all too rare displays of heroic holiness, however, a person's physical weakness, united with the suffering of Christ, may reveal what God wills for everyone he loves, the glory of the resurrected life, where death and pain shall be no more. Indeed, as the apostles bear witness, the call to Christian service is a forsaking of comfort in imitation of him who sacrificed his body for the redemption of everyone's bodies and souls. Nonetheless, no rational creature desires to experience physical pain. Indeed, even St. Paul reminds us that he prayed three times for the Lord to remove his mysterious thorn widely interpreted to mean a debilitating physical challenge. Only when the Lord refused him relief did the apostle come to understand the power of Christ at work within him. Countless saints throughout the ages have followed suit. Although not a saint, at least not yet a saint, the late Stuart Long, a priest of the Diocese of Helena, Montana, is a recent exemplar of a suffering servant, a man who descended into physical weakness while, it would seem, his spirit became all the more willing to serve Christ and his church. A convert to the Catholic Church, Stu was known for his larger-than-life personality and tales from a colorful past that included boxing, bouncing, acting, motorcycle riding, and various other expressions of hard living. But upon being won for the kingdom of heaven, Stu, 
soon to be Father Stu, was all in. Despite receiving a diagnosis that essentially amounted to a death sentence, he offered himself as a priest, becoming a renowned confessor that the faithful would travel to see from far-flung climes. In 2022, filmmaker Rosalind Ross released a movie about Father Stu, starring Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson, putting a fictional account of his life into the view of a wide audience. By most accounts, Ross's film is a faithful presentation of the man. But we can learn so much more by speaking directly to someone who knew Father Stu personally. Father Bart Tollison is a priest of the Diocese of Helena and was a close friend to Father Stu. Both men were made priests in the same ordination mass, and each man deeply affected the life of the other. Father Bart has recently published reflections about his friendship with Father Stu in the new book from Ignatius Press called That Was Father Stu, a memoir of my priestly brother and friend. It is my pleasure to welcome Father Bart Tollison to the podcast today. Father Bart Tollison, welcome to the Ignatius Press podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Andrew. Well, it's great to have a chance to talk to you, Father. Um, we're discussing your new book, That Was Father Stu, a memoir of my priestly brother and friend. Now, some of our listeners may have heard of this guy called Father Stu, and we'll get into the reasons why in a moment. But this is an interesting book in, in its own right, because this is your story. It's your story of your relationship with your friend. So I wonder if you could start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and also a little bit about your friend, Father Stu. Sure. So uh, Stu and I were both converts to the Catholic faith later in life. So I was in my 20s uh, when I converted, and, and Stu was, uh, I think, uh, almost 30 when he converted. We actually became Catholic on the exact same day. And when we found that out, it was, it was pretty funny, pretty ironic. But because we both had had experiences before the Catholic faith, mine was very Protestant. Stu's was very agnostic. Uh, you know, I think we kind of drew together to say, you know, this faith that we both have embraced is something that's, uh, you know, it's new to us, but it's dear to us because we both have sacrificed a lot to become Catholic and 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 to move this way. And for me, growing up, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I was raised primarily in a very religious family, a very devout Protestant family. Probably a lot of things I encountered growing up had a bit of an anti-Catholic bent, but I didn't understand them. I don't think the people explaining them to me understood them very well either. But it was still a household of faith, and that was a primary consideration in my house growing up. I have one sibling, and um, she moved, she got married and moved to Montana in the early 90s. And so I started visiting her at least once a year and really fell in love with Montana. And that precipitated me desiring to become a priest for the Diocese of Helena after a lot of discernment about different opportunities. And uh, Stu, in the same way, he had, he had had a lot of kind of opportunities and wound up back in his home in Helena. Uh, studying as a as a diocesan uh, seminarian as well. 
Now, you, you mentioned that you had in common with Stu, the fact that you both were, you both came from non-Catholic backgrounds and you had this um, providential, you know, uh, occurrence of having become Catholics at the exact same time and then later ordained to the priesthood, obviously, at the exact same time. But you also had, as you, you alluded to there, you came from a, a, a church-going family, a Protestant family. Father Stu uh, did not. And um, so there are obviously a lot of differences there. Can you tell us just kind of a little bit about Father Stu's background that, you know, sort of what his life was like before he came into communion or before he was baptized and became Catholic? Right. His mother had two children already before uh, she got married to Stu's dad from kind of a broken relationships. Uh, the the older brother uh, lived in the house with Stu growing up. So he was, he was really is Stu's older brother. His name is Scott. And then when Bill and Kathleen, they'd known each other for a long time when they met, uh, you know, Kathleen uh, took him. She was just a few years older than Bill. And they got married. They originally, uh, Stu was born in Seattle. They were living in Seattle, but then quickly moved back to Helena. So they didn't really have a faith. And, you know, Stu was just, didn't even really know what faith was so much. I mean, he had concepts of God, concepts of heaven. When his uh, younger brother, Stephen, died, his brother, Stephen, is about six years younger. And then there was uh, another sister, Amy, that came along after Stephen. And when Stephen died, Stu, you know, asked his dad, you know, where's Stephen? And his dad just pointed up to the sky for lack of a better way to give a young man an explanation about how, why his little brother died. So there was always kind of a sadness and a doubt maybe about why did God let this happen? You know, what kind of beautiful, wonderful, good God would, you know, allow this terrible tragedy, this little boy to die. And so Stu kind of, I think he had a chip on his soldier, sh shoulder about faith. And he ended up going to Carroll College, which is in Helena. He was recruited to play football. And so when he would go to classes and things with religion he would try to undermine the professor that was like he loved doing that because he was a really smart guy until he met uh, a professor priest named jeremiah sullivan uh sullivan realized Stu, you know kind of was a little bit directionless and and uh taught Stu how to box at carroll college and when Stu found boxing you know he had been a street fighter he was a big tough guy he was kind of a partier. Um, you know, he wasn't necessarily mean, but he was tough. And uh, with boxing, Stu found kind of the perfect sport for him because he had to learn patience. He had to learn how to be smart, but also he could use his body and his fighting skills uh, in the ring, you know, and it was okay. So he became a very good boxer pretty quickly and uh, had some uh, one golden gloves in Montana one year came runner up the second year by Stu's admission, he would have liked to have uh, said he really thinks he won both. But anyway, but he did get some injuries and he tried professional boxing, did all right, but there's not a lot of money with someone at that level. And he got injured even worse. And he did receive an injury to his jaw. That was probably from something that happened when he was a kid and it just made it really bad. He lost teeth and had fevers and that sort of thing. And so the advice was don't box anymore. Stu tried it one more time after he recovered from that injury. And it, he just said, I, I can't trust my body. I, I can't do this. So after graduating from Carroll College, 
he decided to move out to California to become an actor um, at his mom's suggestion. <laughs> I think she was trying to get him out of the house because Stu is basically just making money being a, a bartender and a, and a bouncer and getting into too much trouble. And so, you know, that kind of inspired Stu a bit. He went out to L.A. and, uh, you know, tried to run the gamut of breaking in and didn't have much success. He he got to one part where he was cast as the bad guy in the CBS movie of the week. And he wouldn't ever let anybody see the movie. Um, but uh, <laughs> we did finally figure out which one it was. It took, a, it took some time, but I promised him I wouldn't talk about it. So um, anyway, uh, so from there, you know, he didn't really succeed. And he decided that he just needed to make money. And so he took a job at the Norton Simon Museum in California and uh, really loved it. And he excelled at it. He was a director of security and then he moved into human resources. And at one point had over 60 employees working directly below him. And that's when he met his, uh, his girlfriend. And from there, you know, they kind of fell in love, moved in together. And then he had his motorcycle accident. And at that point, really something happened at that accident to open up his heart to faith. And it, it, there was probably a mystical experience. I mean, I'm convinced that there was that happened. So uh, one day, Stu's kind of rehabilitating from his motorcycle accident. And the girlfriend comes in. And Stu describes her as like she was glowing. And he asked her, "What? why are you glowing? She was vacuuming the floor glowing. And she said, I went to confession for the first time in 13 years. This has kind of opened my eyes. I want to go back to church. And if you want to marry me, you have to join the church as well. And Stu, who would have been very reticent up to that point in his life, decided, no, this is a, something happened. I'm spared for a reason. So I think I'm going to look at this and started RCIA and really took to it, really fell in love with the faith, had a great sponsor, some great teachers. And um, as he fell more in love with the faith, he fell less in love with uh, the woman he was supposed to marry, and they en ended up breaking it off. And uh, Stu kind of was thinking uh, at his baptism, he had this notion that he wanted, he was being called to be a priest. And Stu he went to see his priest a, a few days after, you know, his baptism at the Easter Vigil, and the priest said, now, listen, you're engaged to be married. I don't think God's calling you to the priesthood. A lot of young men have this kind of fanciful idea when they become Catholic that you'll be a priest. But uh, you just stay on the married, married track. And I, I think for sure God is not calling you, especially you, <laughs> to be a priest. And uh, Stu really wanted the idea to go away, but it kept coming back, coming back, coming back. And so when he broke up with his girlfriend, he was still dating other women. But he would also start to talk about being a priest, which didn't go so well when he would go out on dates. And finally, one woman really got on him and said, listen, you're using me uh, and I don't appreciate it. And it kind of opened Stu's eyes. It, was, it wasn't until uh, Stu eventually quit his job and started teaching and coaching at a Catholic school in California. But it, it, he just never made any steps forward to the priesthood until uh, his buddies took him to hear Father Benedict Rochelle. And uh, once he heard Father Benedict Rochelle speaking, it was, I think, a, some sort of charismatic or religious education conference. Stu was sold. And at that point, he just gave up everything, pursued uh, priesthood with the Franciscan friars out in New York, and uh, 
was in Ohio for a couple of years getting a master's in philosophy. That didn't work out with the friars, and uh, he went on back, and I uh, was encouraged to go talk to the bishop in Helena, which he did, who accepted him right away. So there's a lot of information here to give Stu's background. Yeah, that that's it's really helpful background. Now, I would imagine, Father, that most dioceses have a handful of men who have you know, not stories exactly like Father Stu's, but they have colorful backgrounds maybe, uh, and they have made their way by by way of a conversion experience or something ultimately to the priesthood. The difference, it seems, though, with Father Stu is maybe what comes next in his life story, which is his his illness and his sort of physical, um, you know, physical debilitation uh, that uh, is really kind of the basis for, you know, the, the movie that was made about him and, and a lot of what you write about in your book. So I wonder if you could tell us about that and where, where does that come in the story in terms of when you knew him and, and where he was on the path to becoming a priest? When Stu was, he, he was in, uh, he got sent out to Mount Angel in Oregon for his theology studies. And in his third year in theology, it's four years of theology, he was just having hip and knee problems and he, you know, it was like bothering him and they, they did some x-rays and well, you need a hip replacement. So actually in um, uh, Christmas time of third theology, he stayed in Oregon and had a hip replaced. And uh, you know, from there um, he had a few episodes where, you know, after the hip replacement, he was rehabilitated. He was, you know, a little slower than he used to be, but he could walk fine. But he had uh, a few episodes where he would be putting on his clothes in the morning and he wouldn't be able to move his hands. And he said it felt like someone pulled a drain plug on my energy and it just kind of oozed out all over the, the floor, so to speak. And so... You know, Stu didn't tell anybody. He's like, it'll go away. You know, I'll be fine. I'm, you know, because he was a tough guy. So when I first met him face to face in the summer of 2006, he walked slowly, but he didn't walk with a cane or with a limp or anything. He just walked slowly. And um, so we, I remember the first time we really spent quality time together was on the Indian Reservation. Uh, he was on a summer assignment there. And my, my summer assignment pastor said, you should go spend some time with him and spend some time on the reservation. So I spent four days with him and, you know, we hung out the whole time. We walked everywhere. I mean, I was tired, you know, at the end of the day and he just said, we're going to walk and we can walk. We're going to walk. And we walked everywhere. It was that last night we were together that, uh, you know, as we were coming out of dinner, he had been in the bathroom for about 20 minutes, kind of a long time. And he said, I got to sit down. I'm so tired. And then he told me, you know, I've had this issue. I don't know what to do. What do you think? And I was like, well, I think you got someone to look at. And he goes, well, maybe I need another hip replacement or knee replacement. I said, I don't know, you know, but you need to get someone to look at it. And so he did, when he got back to seminary, he went back to the doctor, they did the test and they said, well, we think it's probably poly, polymyositis, which is actually treatable. And the first note I got from Stu on it was like, I'm going to be treated. I'll be fine. This is a treatable disease. But the doctor said, I, I want you to go get more work done. I, I'm not entirely certain. So he went uh, down to uh, California and uh, had with some specialists. And then they diagnosed not polymyositis, but uh, inclusion body myositis, which 
is not treatable. I mean, they can slow it down a bit, sort of. Uh, but at that point, that was when it was really a sentence for Stu. And then there were some questions about his priesthood from the seminary, a little bit on the end of the diocese. And even Stu had some doubts himself. And so, you know, that was the point um, that I, every time I saw him, he was maybe just a little weaker or a little slower. I mean, he was still Stu, but once you knew that diagnosis, you could see it coming. Father, one of my favorite parts of your book is the chapter where you write about Stu's um, pilgrimage to Lourdes uh, when he, I believe he was a deacon and not yet a priest and and very much, um, I guess we could say, suffering from, from his illness and really wondering whether the Lord was going to heal him and allow him to kind of live... Uh, live life as a priest in a, in a healthier body so that he could kind of, you know, serve more um, actively or, or what was going to happen. And I wonder, wonder maybe if I could throw it back to you from there and you could tell our listeners about the experience he had at Lourdes. So at Stu's transitional diaconate ordination, he was obviously very weak. I mean, he could barely get up the stairs of the sanctuary. And, you know, at that point, everyone was kind of concerned. Then we got the diagnosis. And the bishop at the seminary's recommendation had said, we're going to wait on priesthood for you. We're just going to wait. There's some questions and some issues. Now, I think Bishop Thomas at the time knew he was going to ordain Stu, but he also needed to be prudent and do due diligence, so to speak. And at that point, Stu had the opportunity uh, to go along with his friend, who was now Father Killian McCaffrey, uh, to go to Lourdes. And when that opportunity came up, I mean, Stu... Stu was stubborn in so many things, and he was stubborn in the idea he was going to be healed because he knew that God was calling him to be a priest. And if this illness was going to be in the way of him being a priest, then God was going to heal him. That was his logic. And so when he told me he was going to Lourdes, kind of nonchalantly, he was like, yeah, I'm going to go and go, go get healed. Blessed Mother's going to heal me. And I'm like, okay, all right, go. That's great. I'm really happy for you. He goes, it's going to happen. No. No doubt about it. I mean, he had, I mean, you want to say not hardly a shred of doubt. I mean, it was pretty amazing. And so when he went to Lourdes and got in the water, he he thought it'd be really simple. He'd get in the water and he'd come back out and he'd be healed. And so, as you know, they had these guys helping him down into the water because he was really weak. And when he came back up, he was moving to take a step forward thinking, well, my body's healed now. And he fell back over in the water. And I mean, as he fell back over... (laughs) It just was like everything, uh, every shred of hope was just drained out of him. I mean, for from a moment to being so certain to being so at the bottom and everything he doubted. I mean, just in a moment's time when that didn't happen. And Father Killian, you know, saw he was moping around and was really worried about him and said, well, you know, Stu, we made a big mistake. We didn't go to confession before you went in the water. And Stu was like, well, you're right. We should have gone to confession. I was so fixed on me getting healed. So Killian got him in a line and they both went to the a priest who spoke English. And the next day, the tour group was going out to go see something, this or that. And Stu said, well, I'm just not feeling well. I'm going to stay behind. And uh, the group, for the most part, left. There were a couple of women that stayed behind and Stu contacted them and said, I need you to take me back to the waters. I need to go back in. And so the next day, unbeknownst to most of the people in the tour group, that he went back to the waters. And on going back in the second time, 
He said, I came up and I wasn't healed physically, but my soul was healed. I had this, it's like someone that had taken all the hope out, out of me was pouring peace into me and I was going to be fine. I was fine with whatever would come, just a complete sense of peace. And then on the way back, a part of the group stopped in Paris and they asked, do you know, what, what do you want to do in Paris? And he goes, I want to go to Notre Dame. I want to see it. And so they like wheeled him, you know, several miles from where they were staying into the cathedral. And Stu was quite a historian. He was going around telling people, you know, this saint, that saint, there were side chapels and he was, you know, and so they came to this one and uh, Stu looked at the statue and it was like, well, you know, kind of blurted it all out. Who is that young boy? And uh, a French woman who spoke English came up and said, that's Joan of Arc. And Stu was like, oh, I didn't recognize her. And so he started talking to, uh, there's a, another woman next to him talking about Joan of Arc. And he said, something really strange happened. Uh, at that point, he goes, for a moment, I was out of my body. And the reason I knew I was out of my body is I had this constant pain from the disease and it was gone. And I knew that St. Joan was there. We weren't talking, but we were communicating. And he said, I didn't see her. It wasn't a bright light. I was just out of my body. And uh, at that point, St. Joan revealed to me that this disease would not be healed, but it would be the victory for Stu and his priesthood. And she kind of compared his wheelchair for a cross of Christ to the opinion she carried. She made some analogies back and forth about her life and his life. And Stu said, you know, he knew he came back into his body with two reasons. One is the pain came back right away. And secondly is he was, he was just weeping. He said it was, he didn't know he was weeping, but he was just covered in tears. And people were like, well, are you okay? You know what? You were kind of out of it there for a little bit. And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. And so, but he knew, I mean, Stu would do anything he could to prolong his life and to continue to serve as a priest, but he knew fundamentally that he wouldn't be healed and that this disease would take his life. And he was pretty clear about that with me uh, the whole time after that. And, you know, when he got back, immediately Bishop Thomas called him in and said, I'm going to ordain you and Bart together in December. And Stu got a hold of me and said, we're getting ordained. <clears throat> and then I went to see him and we talked and he said well let me tell you what happened and we we talked about it a few other times because it was such a fascinating story to me and Stu's not a mystic and so he's having this really kind of crazy mystic experience but then I think about his motorcycle accident and I think about his baptism and, and then you know it doesn't really surprise me that Stu would be the occasional mystic but he he certainly didn't strike you as a mystic when you met him yeah, so you say Father he Father Stu was not a mystic, but did he have a, a sense even then at the beginning of his ministry as a priest that his illness would somehow be um an opportunity? Like it, I mean, I hate to put it that way, but that that he really that he believed from the beginning of his priesthood that it would be through, you know, sort of in the Pauline sense of that, through his weakness, Christ's strength would, strength would be revealed to those around him. Did he have a sense of that? Or did that just kind of, was that not really in his mind? I think he had a sense of that because it was revealed to him. He didn't know how it would manifest. So Stu wasn't one to just say, well, I'm too weak. You know, I mean, he was, if he could tough it out, he was going to tough it out. And it, sometimes he got himself into, you know, the deep water with his physical condition and he probably made some mistakes, but it was just determined. And so 
he just believed Christ would would work through his priesthood. I mean, Stu initially wanted to be a parish priest, and he spent time doing that. And so he didn't have this idea of, you know, I'm going to have a ministry in the nursing home or whatever. That came later. And, and so it just kind of came step by step as he needed to make adjustments uh, to what he was doing. So, but it was never about, you know, celebrating his weakness, but he knew that Christ would meet him in his weakness, I guess. Yeah, I think that's well put. That comes through in in your reflections about your friend in the book, to be sure. Let's talk about let's talk about then that transition from uh, Father Stu is ordained. He does he he spends some time in parish ministry, and you recount in your in your memoir how you and others had to help him from time to time. It, he would get himself physically into situations that he kind of couldn't couldn't get out of, and you know you're welcome to talk about those. But I I um. The next stage is he ends up having to go and live in a in a care facility, and um, this becomes his. Uh, I think that you describe it as his room two twenty seven ministry. That he, he has a ministry that he runs in a sense out of this, out of this room in a in a a, a care home or or whatever it is. I wonder if you could just just talk us through that. Like, what what was that experience like for you as his friend, seeing him transition into that role? You know, initially, Stu kind of had dreaded the wheelchair because, you know, if you look at the life of Christ, you know, we have kind of the Last Supper and 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 some of the sufferings. But then there's the point where Christ receives a cross and makes the journey up Calvary, the way of Calvary. And Stu knew once he was in the wheelchair, it was it was the road to Calvary. You know, all the other stuff had kind of bypassed him. And so, you know, at first it was kind of a, a mixed uh, love hate relationship with the wheelchair. But pretty quickly, he figured it out how to operate it, and it gave him mobility that he didn't have, and that was huge for him. And so, you know, the first time I went to see him, he's you know he's in his room, no one's in there, he's just playing a video game on his phone, kind of one of these early incarnations on the cell phone, and you know, he's like, "Well, here I am. This is this is where I'm going to be," and, and it's like, "Well, yeah." And you know, it was kind of a dark, dreary place. And Stu was like, "Ah, oh, it doesn't bother me." I used to go volunteer at places like this all the time. And I always liked the people inside. And I know I'm like the people in this place too, whether they're workers or the residents, I, I, you know, it doesn't scare me. And, uh, you know, he embraced it pretty quickly. Uh, you know, sometimes he'd scream at his, the guy that shared, he shared the bathroom with. And, uh, you know, for Stu, <laughs> one of the ongoing jokes with Stu is like, you know, kind of stuck in the bathroom. Uh, that had happened before, you know, I'd rescued him a few times. His dad rescued him multiple times and uh, others rescued him sometimes. And sometimes once he got into two, two, seven, if it was a guy, he would actually just say, well, let's talk. I'm in the bathroom. You know, see, people would have to go in the bathroom uh, to do whatever they need to do with Stu. I was like, only Stu would do that. Um, but anyway, but pretty quickly, I, I, I mean, when you talk to the guy, he was such, such a straight shooter. He didn't have a hidden agenda. He wasn't out to, you know, whatever. He was just out to like totally spend himself for what time he had left to be a good priest and to give people hope and to trust in God and their trials and their situations. And so in some ways he, he made some really close friends during that time, lay people, uh, you know, he got closer to his parents, obviously during that time, uh, you know, I had a, it was a unique sort of thing for me to, to kind of be assigned away for a while and then come back to Helena 
and to see how much his ministry had grown. And, you know, that's when the lines had started and there was, you know, cautions on the door, don't come in and confessions in progress. And you can never get in to see him toward the end of his ministry. And that's when I started going to see him really early in the morning because no one was awake at that point. Stu was always like, just wake me up. You know, I need to see you. You need to see me. So obviously there's a problem getting in during the day. Let's just, just come wake me up and we can take as much time as we need. As we need, Stu could always fall asleep at, at the drop of a hat. So he was like, I'll sleep whenever I can. It'll be fine. So that was kind of a practice of, you know, getting up and going, you know, it's getting right out of bed. I'm going to go see Stu. And uh, it was kind of an interesting way to spend, uh, you know, our friendship those early morning meetings. And, you know, the thing I liked about Stu is I could really tell him anything and he could tell me anything. So uh, he was very frank with me. I was frank with him. And uh, it was good because we were friends and we challenged each other and both knew our limits. And we kind of, uh, you know, iron sharpened iron, so to speak. We're different in personality. And I think Stu knew that my perspective would be different from his. And I knew the same thing. So you you say about Stu, uh, I'm, I'm going to quote you here, Father. He said, I would personally witness Stu at the height of his priestly greatness. That you, it, I, I re- that really struck me reading your your words. For for you as a priest witnessing another priest, um, you know what you're looking at. You know when you see someone doing what God has him on earth to do. And I I found I found that very moving. Um, you also said, speaking of the lines and people who had come, presumably from all over the place, right, Father, from all over the country, even um, to to come and make their confession to him, and he was he became known as a. Uh, as a as kind of a, a, a sort of a famous confessor, I suppose, for a while there, didn't he? Well, certainly in Helena, he was a famous confessor. Uh, you know, as people would hear the stories, they would come from, you know, neighboring towns. They'd, they'd come from Anaconda, where he was a priest for a while. They'd come from Butte. They'd come down from Kalispell. They'd come over from Bozeman. He's like, well, I'm going to meet this guy. This guy sounds really interesting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and every now and then, you know, yeah, I'd go around and I'd tell people and when they would come and visit Montana, they would definitely want to go see Stu and meet Stu. And so, uh, you know, he was starting <laughs> he was starting to be a bit of a, a bit of a pre-celebrity, but it was not in his DNA to to be. I mean, he was who he was and it, it, it didn't matter. The thing that I loved about Stu is like whoever needs to see me can come see me. So if you're an agnostic, you want to come talk about God, come talk to me. If you've got, if you're angry at God, you don't go to church, you go to, you're a Protestant, come talk to me. I'll talk to you about anything. Even if you don't want to talk about God, you got a problem, whatever, come talk to me. And so he was just very open to to anybody and to any struggle that they had. And he would give them the truth. He would, you know, shoot straight with them. Sometimes maybe too straight, I guess, because every now and then people would come see me and like, Father Stu told me that I had to do this or I was going to be in big trouble. And I was like, all right, let's nuance that a little bit. So we're not overreacting as you grow closer to Christ. And uh, so it was, it was funny. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't help but think of, you know, uh, stories of Padre Pio or, you know, some of the, these kind of famous stories of these, uh, you know, kind of famous, famous confessors. And maybe it will be the case that uh, we'll remember Father Stu through the ages as, as someone akin to a figure like that. But I guess it, it, uh, 
we, we uh, await, uh, I suppose, what, what may come. But something connected to that that I think is really significant is you mentioned before that people start coming into his life, lay people, and he has this sort of group that are close to him in his illness. And I, I have to admit, I was really bowled over by the story of, of Max, of Miracle Max. Uh, I wonder if you would just tell, tell us a little bit about that. You don't have to tell the whole thing if you don't want to, since we want to leave some surprises for our readers. But, um, but by all means, we'd love to hear something about him. So when uh, uh, my friends, uh, Allison and her husband, Shannon, uh, when Allison got pregnant again, they had, they had lost, they, she had had a miscarriage before and was told that this baby, you know, was, was not developing properly and they had encouraged her to have an abortion. And, you know, she was like, well, I'm not having an abortion, but she was really devastated. She had lost her sister the year before. And so there was kind of this sadness about the death of her sister and Stu had been there for her when her sister had died from uh, leukemia. And now this whole thing of we lost one child, we're going to lose another. This is awful. And so she went to talk to Stu and, and Stu just had this inclination of like, this kid's going to be fine. And that was one of those moments where, you know, Stu, are you, are you hearing from the Lord? Are you just being bold or a little bit of both? But he just told Allison, he's going to be fine. And gave her sacrament of anointing of the sick. And uh, then he also gathered some other women to hold uh, holy hours and prayer times for when Allison would go to the doctor. And, you know, eventually the development turned around kind of miraculously. And I said, you know, it looks like he's going to be well-developed enough to be okay. We're just not sure how he's going to be when he's born. And so there's even to the point when, when Max is born via C-section, there's a lot of uncertainty. And uh, so I know the first week when Allison brought little Max over, for Stu to see him is like, and also to say, you know, I want you to be his godfather. Uh, Stu is like, you know, he's, he's a week old, this kid is. And he's, she's like, he's so strong. He's going to be a wrestler. Let's split him on the floor and see if he can crawl. And she's like, no, he can't crawl. He's only a week old. You know, it's like, um, and uh, so, you know, Alice was like, you know, let's, let's not make him, you know, let's not make him tougher than he is. But, you know, as, as, uh, as Max uh, has gotten older, he's, he's really funny. Um, he's very, he's very bold, like his godfather, uh, every now and then he'll, he'll just without any sort of a precursor, he'll, he, when he was younger, he would do boxing in the closet, I guess, with a pillowcase. And, you know, I was just like, we never showed him how to do that. We didn't know how, how to do that. Um, and, uh, he's very proud of his godfather. He, he lets everybody know that his, uh, he's the one godson of, of the famous father, Stu. And so, but I know Stu has his eye on him. So we'll, We'll see what becomes of Max. I was very blessed to be able to to give Max his first communion. And uh, it's just fun to see this family of faith and this kid coming into the faith. And uh, so I know his uh, his grandmother read Max, the chapter that I wrote about him. And uh, Max and his grandmother, I guess the first time they had read it together, she was reading it to him out loud. They were both crying. And Allison said, I came in the house to pick up Max. And they're both crying. And Max is like, Mom, did you know this story about me? And I was just like, well, yeah, son, I did. I was, I lived it. So very beautiful. It, it, it is beautiful. It's a beautiful chapter that you've written as well. And there's also a, a handsome photograph of you and Max in, in the book. There's a nice uh, photo section, and one of them is, is of you and Max, presumably at his first communion. That was his first communion. Correct. Yes. That's just wonderful continuity that you as Stu's friend get to 
keep up that relationship. Uh, so I, I think our readers will really enjoy uh, seeing, uh, reading that story for themselves. Um, in addition to the Miracle Max story, there's also the Miracle Father Bart story in a way. There's a Miracle Confession, you call it, um, which was another powerful part of the book where you, you're in the midst of kind of a dark night of the soul, it seems like, and you go and see your friend right at the end of his life. I wonder if you could tell us about that. Well, you know, I didn't really know it was the end of Stu's life. I mean, he was getting weaker, but he was still doing ministry. I, and so, you know, there's there were occasions Stu was my primary confessor. You know, those early morning we'd have confession first thing, and I think you know, I, I some other guys heard my confession too, but Stu was my primary confessor. And so, you know, I just had <clears throat> there had been some weeks that were just hard weeks uh, in parish life. Um, some people just you know really being negative and. I won't go into all the details about it. I mean, it, it happens. And, um, but as kind of a younger priest, you, you know, you're kind of like, I, I, you know, what do I do? And so you, you have doubts, you have questions, concerns, and, you know, sometimes your behavior isn't what it should be. You know, I mean, priests struggle with faith sometimes themselves. And, um, but when we fall, we go to confession. And so there was just a night of, uh, having a, a tough time with alcohol and you know i didn't get any sleep that night and i just felt terrible it was i mean it was sunday morning and i was like you know i'm just such a hypocrite but i need to go see Stu. it was it was a little earlier than i normally went but i so you know he'll he'll be there and so i went over there and that was the strange thing is Stu was awake fully clothed in his clerics and the nurses in the care center were trying to calm him down he was in his wheelchair it's kind of screaming and yelling. I was like, well, what's going on? And like, oh, thank goodness they called you. And I was like, well, they didn't call me, but what's going on? And Stu's lost his mind. He's out of his mind. And I'm like, what? And so when Stu saw me, he he all of a sudden got it together and said, you need to go to confession. I mean, I guess he could see see on my soul. And I said, yeah, I do. So we went back to his room as I always had it. And I put the stool on his shoulder for him. And, you know, he heard my confession. And then at the end of it, a couple of things happened that he had never happened before. The first was he started talking to me about my future priestly life and some things that were going to happen, some things uh, that I needed to be ready for, but also some things that were going to be very good. And, um, you know, it was very affirming, very fatherly or very, you know, older brotherly in a sense. I was like, this is weird. And then he gave me, which is so strange for Stu and me, a really light penance. I mean, he never, ever gave me a light penance and he gave me a light penance and then he went out and then he kind of lost. He went back into delirium and it was the, kind of the progression of the disease hitting his mind. And, uh, you know, when Stu knew that it, it really troubled him a great deal. I mean, and so we, we went to the hospital and, uh, I had that Tony and Teresa came over and watched him because he, he wasn't being treated. I had to get back for the morning masses. And, but, uh, you know, you kind of reflect on it is that night is neither, neither one of us got any sleep. It was kind of a dark night for both of us Stu with his illness, you know, me for my doubts. And, um, you know, I didn't know at that time that, you know, it was going to be less than a month and that he was going to be gone. And I think, you know, in hindsight, boy, I mean, I was like, I really try to really remember and relish everything that he said to me because it was significant. Uh, in the moment you think, well, Stu will always be there because he was always there. And so 
you know, that's the point for me in the book is realizing when you lose a friend like that, that it had played such an important part of your life, that that whole sense of grief is it's not just the day he died or the day of his funeral, but it's the weeks and the months and the years afterward that are so hard because my priesthood had been so much based on Stu's priesthood as well. And then all of a sudden he's not there. And, you know, everyone's like, everyone's just goes back to normal, you know, and it's like, it doesn't go back to normal. There's something different. There's something missing. And, uh, you know, that was, those are some hard times as well, you know, moving on without him being there. Yeah. Well, several years pass without him. And then there appears in 2022, a film that a lot of our listeners will have seen called Father Stew, directed or written and directed by Rosalind Ross and starring Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson. And I wonder if you could, you know, some of, a lot of our listeners will have, will have seen the film and that's probably where they've heard of Father Stew. Where were you in all of this, in the development of the film? And, and what is your memory on uh, about sort of how the film came to be? Well, really, I, I wasn't much into the film at all. It was really uh, Father uh, Ed Benioff that had that was at that point was was Mark Wahlberg's pastor, and it was a really good friend of Stu's. Um, was really trying to early instrumentally getting it off the ground, and it was just you know it started in 2015, and by 2020, you know the option was running out in a year, and Bill didn't think there'd be a movie. There had been three or four scripts, and they were all not worthy uh, anything close to what Stu really was and so I actually started the book because I was afraid I was going to lose these memories of Stu uh, if there was going to be no movie and I had no idea what the movie would be I had no clue at all where they would start where they would finish and so um, it wasn't until they announced that they had a script and I guess what Rosalind had done is, is taken a lot of notes she called Bill a couple of times and had decided, you know, she would basically start it, you know, when he's in Helena and take it just to the point when he's ordained, maybe just a step after it and just kind of not have the priesthood. And so, which was fine because it, it introduced people to Stu. And so uh, I, I guess the first one that contacted me was Mel Gibson and just said, you know, I think, uh, what do you know about Stu? And so when we talked, he was like, oh, wow. And so I, he called me and Mark Wahlberg called me. I think they were mainly worried about, you know, because of some of the other scripts that had gone around that, that this one was doing, was being disrespectful. And I said, listen, I get it. You've got two hours. You got to tell a story. You're going to have to change characters and, you know, kind of converge characters and all that. So don't worry about it. I mean, you know, just as long as you'll be true to Stu being uh, converted, I think uh, I think everyone will be all right with it. And so I didn't expect it to be literally Stu's story. But once that movie was announced and, uh, you know, they started shooting it and uh, then it was completed, you know, it was very clear to me that this book that I'd kind of put on the, put on the shelf when I started writing before I thought there was going to be a movie I needed to bring back out. And that's when I got someone to really help me with it and, and got some other things into it. So... That's kind of how it came about with the movie. Well, uh, the movie, I, you know, not having known Stu, I, I have nothing to compare it to. But you, you make the point, you, you do say in your book that, of course, there are a lot of differences between the, the fictionalized account of Stu and, and the real Stu, but that you were generally happy with the way your friend was, your friend's story was told. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I, and Bill Long was too. He goes, 
Bill said it best. He goes, we started off, you know, they started off going one way. We started off going another way, but they both wind up in the same place. And that's what's important. Yeah. Well, finally, Father, in the in the time that remains, I wonder if you could just reflect on what you think Stu's legacy will be. He's been gone now about a decade and um, his story, thanks in large part to the film, but now also to your book is is becoming more and more known. Um, what I mean, do you do you it's hard to say, of course, but do you do you think maybe one day your friend Stu will be declared a saint or do you think he's an exemplar for for more and more people to know about so that they can deal with their own sufferings or, or what do you think his legacy will be? Well, already Stu has been inspirational. His story has been inspirational in so many lives, uh, people that have had loss, people that suffer with the disease, people that have lost loved ones and people trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives, uh, whether it be a priest or a religious or something like that. So already, you know, his legacy is having a positive effect as more and more people are inspired by him. You know, this is one of those interesting things that, you know, you never really figure out how someone becomes a saint, but they got to start somewhere. So, you know, I know early on, basically, because I had some very intense dreams about Stu, that I was like, I've got to start praying to him. And I started encouraging other people to, to ask for his intercession. And so if he come, becomes canonized or not, I, I'll leave that up to the church. I'll leave that up to the Lord. I'll leave that up to Stu. But no matter what, whether he becomes, you know, Saint Stu or just Stu, Father Stu, he's still a good intercessor. And I, st I still see him working and being driven on this kind of heavenly mission to help us here. Um, and, and that's been the beautiful thing. And it's, it's really given that whole insight of, of Stu's heavenly mission and what it means to be working for the other side and to have a friend on the other side, working and working with the Lord and working with our lady. It, it, it's just a really beautiful sort of thing. Now with Stu, as it wasn't when he was alive, you don't always get what you want or what you ask for, but you will always get the grace that you need. If you will be open to it, um, and that's been the beautiful thing about Stu's legacy. And so we have also Beyond 227. Uh, you know, that organization we started has been very successful in kind of uh, raising some money for things Stu believed in and getting Stu's work, getting his message out there and his life story out there. Um, it's been very good. So part of the legacy will be tied to, to that organization in remembrance of uh, Father Stu Long. Well, we certainly wish you well in that work. The book is That Was Father Stew, a memoir of my priestly brother and friend, available now from Ignatius Press, wherever you get your books. Father Bart Tolleson, thank you so much for taking the, the time to join me today on the Ignatius Press podcast. Thanks, Andrew. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com. Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprin. God bless. <laughs>